Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to Judges chapter 20, the book of Judges chapter 20. We continue our study through the Old Testament. Now, we've seen terrible crimes in Israel the past several weeks. Terrible, terrible crimes in Israel. The priest and his wife, her death, her pieces in every tribe in Israel. Blood in the land. Very terrible crimes that we've seen. And last week was a very difficult study, difficult subject matter. And remember, it's at a time where everyone is doing right in their own eyes. The Lord, he's become forgotten. Idolatry has spread and gotten worse. Remember Micah's mom? How idolatry spread? And so this crime in Israel with the priest and his dead wife, this is where we begin our study. If you're listening for the first time, go back and listen. Well, start in, in, in Judges chapter 1 and you'll understand more and you'll see like the ups and the downs of Israel. Not that that's a good thing, you know, the ups and the downs, we shouldn't see that, but yet it happens. That's what happens when the Lord becomes forgotten. When the Lord becomes forgotten, we cannot expect good things. Because the Lord becomes forgotten, idolatry sets in, idolatry becomes the norm, and then from there, it just snowballs, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Such as what we're looking at in Judges 19 and 20. 19, we finished last week, and so we begin in Judges 20 in verse 1. So the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, there's something very unifying about egregious events like this. And in no way, shape or form am I suggesting that this is a good thing because we didn't have to get to this point. It didn't have to be this way. But over the course of the last several weeks in our study in Judges 17, 18, 19, and here we are in chapter 20, we've seen how things devolve. Starting with idolatry. When the Lord becomes forgotten, it didn't have to reach this point at all. You see, remember the, the, the priest that Micah paid for? He could have looked around and saw the idols and says, hey, I'm out. No, thanks. Or looked around, saw the idols and says, hey, you know, your home is dirty. Your home is filthy before the Lord. Come on, let's get you cleaned up. Number one, let's destroy these idols. Let's get rid of these idols. And then after that, let's get you and your, your mom. Let's get everybody cleaned up. So that everybody, we can all be right before the Lord. That's what should have happened. But oh no, that's not what happened. You see how idolatry spreads. Idolatry became the norm and it didn't have to reach this point. Then you have the priest's wife, dead wife. Not wife as wife, wife as concubine. To fulfill his sexual passions. And now she's dead. You see? And the crime is such a jolt to the system. Sometimes that's what it takes. And I don't want to paint this as like, you know, it's a good thing. But sometimes it's such a jolt to the system that that's what rocks people's world. It get to, to, to the rock things to the point where, oh my goodness, this is such an egregious event, be it a crime, a turn of events, a sequence of events, whatever it is, but sometimes that's what it takes. 
This isn't reserved for the judges 20 generation because we see the same thing in the book of Revelation, a future event where these atrocities befall the earth. And you see people refusing to repent. You see the hardness of their heart in refusal to repent. And then you see that that they refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. And then things get worse. And finally, they acknowledge the Lord. You see? And it's so sad because it didn't even have to get to that point. It doesn't have to get to that point. Because to acknowledge the Lord and be right with Him, it can happen right here and right now. You see? But that's what happens when the Lord makes Himself known. And these events, sometimes they're so tumultuous. Sometimes, whatever it is, it's so egregious. It's so palpable. It's such a jolt. It's so... It's so loud that it cuts out the noise of everyday life to where, okay, something needs to be done. And that's what we see here in chapter 20. The people gather in verse 1 as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. The the children of Israel came out in verse 2. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. In verse 3, now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Now, geographically speaking, we see something very interesting because Gibeah had the Benjamite population, but was in Judah. And, you know, you have to go back to our studies in Numbers and and Joshua, and you know when you see the, uh, 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 the, the the diving out of the land and inheritance of the land, it's like wait a second. Geographically speaking, you see something that's like whoa, that, what's happening here? Because the Benjamin, you know, Gibeah, what, the the crime that happened last week in chapter nine, where you know the the, the gang rape all night long until morning, it happened in Gibeah, and Gibeah was Benjamite, but was in Judah. Very interesting. And in verse 3, we see, then the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? It's that the crime is so egregious that everybody gathered together as one. It's so egregious. And they say, what happened? How did this wicked deed happen? In verse 4, so the Levites, the dead woman's husband. So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin to spend the night. Now, let's not forget. Let's not forget. This is where he wanted to go. Don't forget. Remember our study from last week. His servant is the one who told him, hey, let's go. Let's go to this other town. But oh, no, that's not what happened. The Levite, he thought, well, you know, it's going to be nice and safe for us with our own people in Gibeah. And that's where his wife died. And to say his wife died, that kind of glosses over it. You know what happened? He, the priest, the Levite, he threw her to the wolves. And they raped her all night long. Multiple times, multiple men, they raped her. 
And the priest, he's explaining the events to this newly formed assembly. And they're angry. Well, you know, in, in, in verse 3, how did this wicked deed happen? They gathered together as one. And in verse 5, and the men of Gibeah, this is, you know, the, the priest is, you know, explaining this. And in verse 5, and, and the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. How, how convenient to tell events like this. You see, leave out the fact that he's the one who threw his wife out to them. Oh, they intended to kill me, but instead they took her. They, they ravished my concubine and then she died. But he's the one who threw her to the wolves. In verse 60, so I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. They committed lewdness? It's them? I mean, yes, they did, but is there not more to go around? Remember, this is coming from a priest. This is coming from a Levite. I mean, with a priest like this, straight up, with a priest like this, how in the world can people be clean? Knowing that only the clean can clean. You see, people like to treat priests as title, and these are things that we're going to see even more, and it's going to get worse in our studies through the Old Testament. And we're going to see people treat priests like a title, but the Bible says, no, it's not a title. Just like pastors today. People treat pastor as a title, but the Bible says, no, it's not a title. These are vessels of the Lord, and they have a specific job to do. Very specific job to do. And you see defunct priests. You see defunct pastors. Old Testament, New Testament, and still today, you see defunct pastors. They do not teach the word of God. They do not teach sound doctrine. You see? And if you're listening for the first time, go back and listen to our studies to the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, second Timothy. Don't forget the introduction, introduction to Timothy's. First Timothy, second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Go back and listen to our pastoral epistles because you'll understand the formula of the pastor. Remember, leadership matters. Old Testament, New Testament, leadership matters. And here you have this priest, he's explaining, oh yeah, you know, they committed this lewdness and outrage in Israel. Listen, this priest, how lewd is this priest. And yes, there is outrage in Israel, but his very behavior is outrageous. Outrageous. This priest, Levite. You look at pastors today. Yeah, they got the pastor parking spot. Yeah, they got the pastor name tag on their chest. Head pastor co-pastor but you look at their behaviors outrageous just turn on the tv look at the news pastor doing the sex molesting the kids you look at hillsong doing their sex like crazy pastors 
outrageous. Now, in Judges 20, look what this Levite says. Look what the priest says. In verse 7, look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. What? What's happening? He's the priest. He's the priest. If the formula was right, if the formula was right in him, number one, not just in him, but also in the assembly of Israel. But if the formula was right, number one, this whole series of events would have never happened. If the formula was right, it would have never happened. Number two, if the formula was right in the priest, it should be the priest giving advice and counsel. That's if the formula was right. You see? Picture a pastor, a pastor to a church. A problem arises and the pastor says, okay, everybody, give your own advice and your own counsel. You can't, you can't crowdsource, crowdsource your godly counsel. You're not going to use hive mind mentality for godly counsel. That's not how it works. That's how the fool operates. I mean, when we look at Corinth, is this safe to do with the leaven of Corinth? No way. Picture that with the defunct, the defunct pastors. What's your advice, pastor of Corinth? What would the pastor say? Oh, eat, drink, and be merry. God is love, so I'm just going to love on you. What would the defunct pastor say? But then you turn to Paul. Hey, Pastor Paul, what is your advice? What is your advice to us here in Corinth, Paul? You know what Paul says? Your rejoicing isn't good. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Remnant, separate from the leaven. You see? Or a person goes to Pastor Alexander. Hey, Pastor Alexander, what's your advice? Oh, eat, drink, and be merry. What's your advice, Pastor James? Adulterers and adulteresses? You have not because you ask amiss. You see? And when you understand formula, you can see these differences. You can see the defunct pastors of Corinth. And then you can see the pastors like James, like Peter, like Paul. They have a job to do. Tasked by the Lord to shepherd. You see? And not shepherd for the sake of shepherding. Shepherd to paradise. Shepherd to the Lord. You see? In the Old Testament and New Testament, and still today, only the clean can clean. Only the clean can clean. Look what happens here in Judges 20, in verse 8. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. Now, we can see this and observe the people are one. They, they've been unified because of this, 
sin because of this crime and I mean, body parts of this woman all throughout Israel. The people are one. They have a Levite among them, a priest. They heed the priest. You say, okay, well, you know, they, they got everything Moses told us about. Look, you know, this is a good thing. They got all, look, they got, the people are one. They have a priest. He's Levite. Oh, look, this is exactly what Moses told us. But when you understand formula, you know that this is far from what Moses was talking about. Remember the Pharisees to Jesus? Oh, we're hardcore. We follow Moses. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what they say to Jesus. Oh, we're hardcore. That's what they say to our Lord. We follow Moses. And Jesus, the author of the recipe and formula in John chapter 5, this is what he says. John chapter 5, verse 45. He says, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Notice. Notice what he said. Don't think that I will accuse you. There is one who already accuses you. You know who he says? He says, Moses in whom you trust. In verse 46 of John 5, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. Whoa. I met with carnal eyes. You can look at the assembly of Israel and say, okay, look, Israel, they're together. They're as one. You know, less Benjamin. But the assembly, they're one. Oh, look, they have a Levite among them. Oh, look, he's priest. Oh, look, they seek counsel from the priest. This is a good thing. But is it a good thing? Don't forget a time when everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. And here in verse 9, this is what happens in verse 9. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. Now, remember in verse 2, we see 400,000 foot soldiers. So they're ready for war. They're going to fight. They're going to take vengeance. And we could look at the situation and be like, oh, you know, rightfully so because of this egregious crime. And yes, it's an egregious crime. But look at what they're already planning to do in verse 10. We will take 10 men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand and a thousand out of every 10,000 to make provisions for the people. That when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. Look at what they're already planning to do. Take vengeance. And not just take vengeance, but they have their, their strategy. In preparation for war, they have this focus on their provisions to make, you know, in verse 10, to make provisions for the people there. You know, they have their focus on the supply line. The strategists, they figured everything out. They're just, they're, they're, they're ready. They're ready. And in verse 11, so all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. 
Oh, look. Look what we have here. Israel, remember, with carnal eyes, we can look at the situation. Oh, look, this is this is so nice. The assembly, they're unified. They got their priest. They have their Levite. They sought counsel. Let's forget the fact that the, 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 that the Levite, the priest, told them, you know, hey, figure it out. And so now they're ready for war. They have their provisions. They're, they, they, they've worked out the supply chain, their supply lines, and they're ready for war. They're united as one man. The strategists, they have their brilliant plan of attack. Supply lines, everything's figured out. And in verse 12, then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah. Now, this isn't to say that there are not perverted men in Gibeah. No, there are perverted men in Gibeah. Let's not forget the crime that happened last week in chapter 19. Terrible, terrible crime. Remember, they were banging on the door. They wanted to have sex with the priest. Let him out, let him out, let him out, because we're going to have sex with him. And so the priest takes his wife and throws her to them. And they gang raped her all night long until morning. And she died, remember? She died at the door with her hand on the door, coming back home. And that's where she died. I remember her husband walks out, the priest, he walks out and just talks to her. He doesn't realize that she's a corpse, that she died already. He just walks out and talks to her. The objectification of his wife. Not wife as wife. Not wife as helper. Wife as concubine. To fulfill his sexual passions. Priest. You see? And now this crime has happened. And the assembly of Israel. As one man. One man. They're mad. Straight up. They're mad. And rightfully so. There's this egregious crime. But. How is their conduct before the Lord at a time when the Lord has become forgotten? And they say to the townspeople, they say, deliver up the men in verse 13, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to their voice of their brethren the children of Israel. Instead, in verse 14, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. Notice what happens here. The, you know, the Israelites, the Israel, they're ready for war. They're saying, you know, let the perverted men out. We're going to kill them and remove this evil from Israel. Benjamin, you know what they do? It's like a counterattack. They gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And in verse 15, and from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Among all these people, in verse 16, were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone. Ev not everyone, but every one of these left-handers 
could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Whoa. Their strong hand was left-sided. They weren't righties. They were lefties. And they didn't just sling a stone. They could sling a stone and hit a target that's the width of a hair. These select men were very skilled. Very interesting what we see here because, you know, Israel with their numbers. What did they expect? Did they expect, you know, okay, we're, we're, we're going to throw out these, you know, the, the, the perverts in Gibeah. Here they are. We'll just throw them out to you. No, they're, they're counterattacked. And in verse 17, now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel, numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So now look at what we see. We have 400,000 on one side and on the other, 26,700. And among that number, 700 were lefties, very skilled with the sling. And that's an understatement because they could hit the, uh, they could hit a target that was the, the, the width of a hair. That's how skilled they were. Just looking at numbers alone. 400,000 on one side, 26, almost 27,000, but 26,700, 26,700 on the other side. Piece of cake. Benjamin is outnumbered. Just looking at numbers alone. Let's see what happens here. In verse 18, Verse 18, then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to the battle against the children of Benjamin? Finally, finally, for the last several weeks in our studies through the latter chapters of Judges, you know what we've seen? No one. No one has inquired of the Lord. No one. Priests included. No one has inquired of the Lord. And finally, the people assembled as one. But we see something else. The choice is already made. The choice, straight up, the choice is already made. What they're doing is they're using God to support the choice that they've already made. Instead of inquiring from the get, instead of from the very get, Lord, what shall we do? What do they do? They, they've already made the decision. We're going to war. The priest says, hey, you know, choose for yourselves. They seek counsel from the priest. The priest says, hey, counsel yourselves. And so they've already made the decision. They already went to Gibeah. Hey, give us the perverted men. And now they're using the Lord. They're requesting guidance on something that they're the ones that they put in motion. You see, instead of saying, Lord, what will you have us do? Now, it happens all the time. You're going to see it more and more in the, oh, we've seen it already and we're seeing it today. It happens all the time in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and still today, where people go here, people go there, people do this, people do that. 
things that they themselves put in motions it put in motion for various reasons for various reasons but not unlike the judges generation not unlike them people continue to do what is right in their own eyes what could be the harm what could be the harm a person might think i apply logic I apply intellect, I apply my feelings, I apply a wisdom of the world. The experts say that this is advisable. My therapist says I should do this. Doing what is right in one's own eyes has many avenues except for one. Doing what is right according to the Lord. Being presumptuous, it's not a good thing. Remember Torah, our study through Torah, five books of Moses. Presumptuous, that's a sin. Remember, you know, oh, the Lord is with us. Let's go fight the Canaanites. You know what happens? They lose. Oh, the Lord is with us. Let's go fight the Amorites. You know what happens? They lose. They're presuming. And in Judges 20, the gathered assembly, they finally, 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 they inquire of the Lord. And about the Benjamites of Gibeah in Judah. What, what, what should we do? Who should go first? And the Lord does respond to them. The end of verse 18, the Lord said, Judah first. Judah first, exclamation point. Judah first. Verse 19. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Wow, what strategy. What strategy we see here. Benjamin is outnumbered. Israel has their supply lines. They have their battle formation. They have their priests. They have their Levites. And they receive word from the Lord that Judah takes point in this war effort. Everything seems like a finely tuned operation, but something happens. Something happens. Verse 21, then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah, and on that day cut to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. Notice, Benjamin had victory, not Israel. Benjamin had victory and not Israel. The people were the that where the perverted crime happened, they had victory and not Israel. What's happening? But the Lord told us, send Judah, the Lord told us. What's happening? And in verse 22, and the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves. So notice the two sides. Benjamin had victory, not Israel. And so the people, the Israel side in verse 22, they encourage themselves and again 
formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Very interesting. Very interesting that we see this phraseology in verse 22. They encourage themselves. It reminds me a lot of the Christianese that believers like to speak. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with Christianese. But the heart better match rhetoric. The heart better match rhetoric. For example, consider the Christianese of leaven-filled Corinth. How would a defunct pastor counsel the guy who's doing the sex, the alcohol, and the extortion? What would he say? Oh, I just want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you. You know, the Christianese, the Christians like to say that, you know, oh, I just want to encourage you. But remember, nothing wrong with speaking Christianese. It's, it's there's nothing wrong with it. But the heart better match rhetoric. Because the defunct of Corinth, what would they say to the guy who's having sex with his dad's wife? That was, the, that was happening in the early church in Corinth. There was a Christian man having sex with his dad's wife. Why did that happen? Why did it get to that point? The alcoholism, the extortion, it was happening in the early church. And it wasn't just the, the first week of being a Christian. It wasn't the, the first two months of the church. No, this was three years uncorrected. Egregious works of the flesh left uncorrected. Uncorrected for three years. Left to fester for years. Who would the pastor speaking Christianese say to such a person? Oh, I just want to encourage you. I just want to love on you and let God figure everything out. But where is the pastor? Where is the pastor who says, repent? Repent, 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 repent. There's no repentance? Okay. Okay. No repentance. Okay. Now it's the next course of action, which is remnant separate from the leaven. That's what Paul did. Where's that guy? That's what I want to know. Where is that guy? Where can such a pastor be found? In verse 23, Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? Again, what's happening? They ask of the Lord. But something is a little different now because they've suffered casualties. They weep and now they ask of the Lord, is this a good thing? Straight up, is this a good thing? Oh, but the people are one. Israel is one. They have their priest. They have their Levite. They sought counsel from the Levite. The Levite said, hey, figure it out for yourselves. Some priest. Yes, there's this egregious crime that has been committed by the perverts of Benjamin in Gibeah. And finally, they inquire of the Lord, you know, who's going to go first? And the Lord says, Judah first, exclamation point. 
and then they lose. Benjamin has victory. What's happening? The Lord told us, send Judah. What's happening? And so now they come back and say, what should we do? Lord, what should we do? Do we go again? In verse 23, shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. In verse 24, so the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin, in verse 25, went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. So what happens? Israel suffers more casualties. With carnal eye, we can observe the battlefield and it with carnal eye, it looks like a piece of cake. Benjamin is outnumbered. The battle should take about 10 minutes. The carnal eye and the carnal mind would presume. But there's something else that needs to be understood. The Bible teaches us that God is not the author of confusion which is a biblical truth. God is not the author of confusion, but it is also written that God does give delusion. How are these two reconciled? Is delusion not confusion? How in the world can we reconcile these two things? If God is not the author of confusion, how is it that he gives delusion? What helps us is understanding formula. Formula. I'll give you an example. Say you and me, you and me, we're in a small fellowship where the formula is right in us, in our gatherings. You're always accounting for babies in leadership and the pastors and the elders. We're in a fellowship where the formula is right all around. Now, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. A biblical truth, and we see it, we live it, and everything is beautiful. Praise be to the Lord. But there is an unseen battle, something we just, just so happens we studied on Sunday. The spirit realm, the unseen battle, where seduction is the tool of demons and all things evil. And you and me, we take those hits. Just say, for example, the unseen battle. And you and me, we take those hits. We're in a fellowship where the formula is right. Probably a small church, maybe even a tiny church. And in the spirit realm, we take those hits. And we become seduced into things that are not good according to scripture. Where Everything was fine. We go to our small church and small fellowship and the formula is right. Except something happened in the spirit realm. And so now we go to our small fellowship just like any other Sunday. And the pastor says something. He says something about sex and alcohol and extortion, just teaching from the Bible. And before, we didn't mind it at all. And, and in fact, we liked it that it was said. Before, we recognized that it needed to be said. 
But since then, we've taken seductive hits. And now what is said, we don't like it. It has become offensive to us. And so we wonder, like we look at each other. How dare he say our rejoicing isn't a good thing? How dare he refer to these behaviors as adulterous? How dare he say those things? You see where before it was perfectly fine. Where now, because of this unseen battle in the spirit realm, we've been where we've taken hits. And now the attacks have impacted us to where our very nature has become altered. Not the good, not the good way where, you know, the regeneration, no, the bad way where it's, you know, walking according to the flesh. And so what happens? Now we leave. We say, okay, we're done. We're out of here. We're going to go to this other church over here. Who's the pastor? Oh, Joyce Meyer is the pastor. Okay, let's go to this church. And we speak Christianese to wrap it in benevolence. Oh, the Lord has called us to this other fellowship. The Lord wants us to leave. Notice what's happening. Now we have a pastor, a new pastor who's female, and we think nothing of it. You know, don't forget, after all, we, we want to feel good about ourselves. It's Sunday after church, and we, we like to feel the, the warm and fuzzies. And we get exactly that. And in the course of time, something else happens where we want to experience more of the Lord. And that's just not happening with Pastor Joyce. So we decide to go to Bethel. Oh, Fr Francis Chan, he partners with them. And we like the crazy love. It spoke to us. We like the unity that he speaks about. And then we remember that dumb little church. We remember that dumb little fellowship where the pastor says extortion isn't good. He doesn't like the sex. He doesn't like the alcohol. What a dummy. You see what's happening in this, in the course of time, you see what's happening? Oh, look, the Lord is with this multitude of people who gathers at the cemetery where we can lay on the grave sites. Oh, look, the pastor tells us it's the Holy Spirit. He went to seminary. He knows what he's talking about. And there we are. There we are laying on grave sites, grave soaking. It's something that so-called Christians do. So-called Christians partake in great laying in grave sites. And there we are, laying on grave sites in strong delusion. Is confusion not delusion? The Bible says God is not the author of confusion. So who's left? We are. Seduced by Satan? we become the very authors of confusion, not the Lord. You see? How do we avoid seduction? Easy. Piece of cake. It's super easy. It's so, it's super simple. I'll give you the answer. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. 
It's just like that tapestry that we just so happened to mention on Sunday. A big, enormous tapestry that's as big as the side of a building. And you look at each little tiny weave and that little act is a piece of cake over, under, in, and out. And that little action is super, super, super simple. It's a piece of cake. But that action times a trillion, it's very intricate. When you factor in needle tips, types of fabrics, when you factor in colors, when you factor in dyeing with certain colors, to create this beautiful tapestry that takes skill. Super simple. The act of, you know, each little thread over, under, in, out, out, and under, and, you know, times a trillion. The very act of one little thread weaving, that's easy. But it's so intricate. To get to the end result of a beautiful tapestry that is exquisite. That takes skill. Peter had it. James had it, Paul had it, John had it, Matthew had it, you see, Timothy had it, Titus had it, Chloe had it, Phoebe had it, Lydia had it, praise be to the Lord. Don't fall for seduction. It is biblically true that God is not the author of confusion, but through seduction. Remember, God is reactionary and he responds. One of those responses when a person is led into seduction and by seduction where it gets worse and worse, which is let's, let's boil it down. It's deception. It's a trap. Going down that path, it leads to delusion and delusion gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. But in this example, you might be like, whoa, this is pretty heavy. And yes, it's heavy, but let's hit the rewind button. Let's hit the rewind button of this example to the part where, you know, you and me, we were initially seduced where everything was fine in church. Everything was fine. If the formula was right, it's not the mega church. It's not a big church. It's a small church and it's probably a tiny church. And we did, in fact, you and me, we did, in fact, behave in a manner that was not pleasing to the Lord. Because remember, we were seduced. Now we go to our small fellowship. Remember, we hit the rewind button. We're not in, we're not in the gravesite with Bethel anymore where, you know, uh, where, you know, these, these false teachers, they like to speak of and partner with. We hit the rewind button. And the pastor is speaking against sex and extortion and alcohol, things that you and me were seduced to partake in. And while the pastor is speaking, he's not laughing about it. He's not happy about it. In fact, no, the pastor is weeping. He's straight up crying. 
Remember Paul? When Paul says to the church, he says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I'm not happy with my words that hurt you. I'm not happy that you were made sorrowful. And he says, what I'm happy about is that you had godly sorrow because it led to repentance. That's what I'm happy about. When you repent. And in this example, here we are, you and me, we're sitting in this little church. And some people are squirming in their seats, including you and me. Painful to hear. You see? Painful to hear. Because the pastor is speaking about works of the flesh. Things that we are engaged in, and it hurts. And so later that night, you and me were having a conversation where just days ago, we were seduced into carnal behaviors. And here it is, you know, that Sunday morning, the pastor spoke about it. It just so happens. And it hurt. It hurt bad. It hurt really bad. Except the pain that we felt, it's godly. That's called godly sorrow. You know why? Because yes, what was said hurt and it hurt bad. And it hurt bad because it was accurate. That's why it hurt. It was accurate by the carnal behavior that was just exhibited in you and me just several days prior. And it hurts. And that sorrow is the very sorrow that causes us to fall to our knees and repent. That's godly sorrow. You see? The previous example where we left, that's worldly sorrow. Oh, you know, we, our little feelers were hurt, so we're out of here. So we're going to go to this other pastor. We're going to submit ourselves to this other pastor where we can still conduct ourselves in the flesh and feel really good about ourselves, you see? And then, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of done. You know, we've kind of maxed out with this other pastor. And so now we want a new experience in the Lord. So now we're going to go lay out in grave sites because this pastor tells us to. That's straight up strong delusion. That's strong delusion. Strong delusion given by the Lord. You see? And God is not the author of confusion. Being seduced, we are the authors of confusion. Seduced by Satan. And worldly sorrow leads away from the Lord. Where before, you know, the, you know, the, the, the past, I can't, you know, how dare the pastor speak about the sex and the drugs and the alcohol and the Ouija boards and the extortion and the Buddha and Mary and angels and the crystals and the chakras and the strippers and the prostitutes and the, you know, the goofballs and cooking spoons. How dare the pastor bring that up? He's so mean. He's so hateful. How dare he mention these things? And worldly sorrow? He hurt my feelings. 
That's worldly sorrow. He hurt my feelings. And so I'm going to go to this other church where I can still do my chakras. I can still do my crystals. You know, I got my little Buddha. I got my, I can still cook spoons. And I can go to this other church and feel really good about myself. That's worldly sorrow. You see? Which leads away from the Lord. And godly sorrow, it leads directly to the throne of grace because we fall to our faces. You and me. Yeah, you know, that Sunday morning we were hurt and we were hurt bad. But it was appropriate. You see? And that's godly sorrow because we're on our faces before the Lord. Lord, forgive me. I say, Lord, forgive me. You say, Lord, forgive me. And we're like, whoa, we blew it. We talked to the pastor. Hey, pastor, we blew it. I'm sorry. The pastor's like, listen, you didn't blow anything. You didn't blow anything. You know what's so beautiful? What's so beautiful is that we're clean before the Lord. You see? And we're like, wow, you know what you said was really, it hurt and it hit hard. And the pastor's like, you know, I know, you know, the, the same truth in the word of God. It's not just for the people. It's for the pastor, too. And, you know, the pastor reads it and it's like, wow, you know, all these things, it applies for all of us. All of us. Pastors included. Remember, Paul, when Paul says to Galatians, he says, if I or anybody preach another Jesus, let us be anathema. Paul includes himself. You see? And this worldly sorrow is something that we're going to see on overdrive in the last days as the church becomes deeply entrenched in apostasy. And apostasy to the point where a person enters strong delusion. Strong delusion. And it's terrible. It's sad. Remember, it is biblically true that God is not the author of confusion. You see, people are seduced by Satan and demons. People are. And that path enters the realm of delusion, that path of seduction. It's wicked. And when it enters strong delusion, you know what that is? That's judgment. Thus fulfills 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it happens when there is no love of the truth. No love of the truth. How dare Paul say that? That's what Alexander and Hymenaeus were very good at doing. And not good in terms of good. I mean very effective in doing. Pulling people away from Paul. How, how dare Paul speak about the sex? How dare James? It, James it says adulterers and adulteresses. How dare James says that? And Alexander and Hymenaeus were very effective at seducing believers. Paul's so mean. How dare Peter say that? He's so mean. How dare James say that? He's so mean. 
But when there is a strong, strong, strong love of truth, even when it hurts, a person can realize what Paul said. Yeah, it hurts. But he's right. And I'm dirty and I need to be clean before the Lord. Therefore, I will repent. What Peter says, yeah, it hurts. But Peter's right. I'm dirty and I need to be clean before the Lord. And I need to fall on my face and repent. What James says, yeah, it hurt. Painful? Yes. Absolutely, it hurt, and it hurt bad, what James says. But James is right. I'm dirty, and I need to fall on my face and repent and be clean before the Lord. Because of what Paul says, because of what Peter says, because of what James says. You know what those people are? Full package shepherds. They're not candy coating anything. If there's no love of the truth, Paul's so mean. Peter is so mean. James is so mean. He hurt my little feelings. He hurt my little feelers. I want to do my sex and James doesn't like it. I want to do my, I want to cook my spoons and Paul doesn't like it. I want to do my crystals and my chakras. James doesn't like it. Peter doesn't like it. I'm done with Paul. I'm done with Peter. I'm done with James. There's no love of the truth. You see? No love of the truth. And don't forget, these shepherds, Paul, Peter, and James, you know, they're open to scrutiny and a person can see the formula is right with them. They're not hypocrites. They're not hypocrites. They don't teach in the day and then go to the bars at night. They're not overseers during the day and then living in revelries at night. And in Peter's case, who was married, neither is his wife. You see, being open to scrutiny. Peter would be disqualified to shepherd if that were the case. I meant if his wife was doing the alcohol, if she was, you know, at, at night, you know, a, a, a supposed godly woman, but then at night she's drinking her alcohol and doing her, you know, whatever. Peter would be disqualified to shepherd if that were the case, but that is not the case. Remember, for shepherds, open to scrutiny. You look at the home, you look at the marriage, you look at the home. So a person could say, how dare Paul say that? How dare Peter say that? How dare James say that? But when you understand formula, Paul is right. Yeah, it hurts, but he's right. Peter is right. Yes, it hurts. James is right. Yes, it hurts. But that's godly sorrow. Because a person can realize, I'm filthy before the Lord. You see? And it's then when a person realizes, I need to fall on my face and repent 
You see? Praise be to the Lord. That's godly sorrow. That's not a bad thing. It's not to be shunned. Godly sorrow? Worldly sorrow, it's what's to be shunned. You see? And these are things that the last day saints, we have to understand. Because it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. When Christians enter apostasy, but not to the level where with James, you know, when, when James says, you know, you adulterers and adulteresses, you know, which translates into apostates, you know, that was like a last ditch effort to say, hey, you know, repent. You know, you ask, you, you, you receive not because you ask amiss. He says, no, you have to be right with the Lord. Remember when James says, you know, like you, 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 you figure a church. Well, the church is supposed to be happy. The church is supposed to be full of joy. And Brother James says, no. He says, weep and mourn and lament. Why? Because they were dirty before the Lord. But let's get you cleaned up. And then comes rejoicing because that kind of joy, it's from the Lord. It's not manufactured. You see pastors at pulpits and they're telling jokes. Because they're telling jokes and they want to, you know, get a rise out of the crowd where everybody laughs. Everybody's got a smile on their face. You know why? Because they're trying to manufacture something that the Lord does. They want people to laugh so they can say, oh, that laughter, it's from the Lord. When really, it's not from the Lord. Because the joy of the Lord, that cannot be manufactured. That's not from a joke. The joy of the Lord, that is not from a joke. You see, they try to manufacture it. Oh, look, we have the joy of the Lord. You come to church and we, 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 we teach for 10 minutes. We teach for 20 minutes and you guys are laughing. Oh, look, that's holy laughter. That's the joy of the Lord. No, it isn't. You're a comedian. See, the pastor is a comedian playing a part. Upokrites in the Greek, an actor playing a part. Picture that. Picture Pastor James saying to a congregation, they come to church on Sunday, they want to be full of joy, they want to be happy, and Pastor James saying, no, 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 weep, lament. Why? Because you're not clean before the Lord. You see? Let's get you cleaned up. The people repent. They're right with the Lord. And that joy, that's from the Holy Spirit. It's from the Lord. It's not James, you know, standing at the pulpit cracking jokes. Far be it from him. You see? This is going to be on overdrive in the last days where Christians, they enter apostasy with no Pauls, with no James, with no Peter to say, hey, let's get you cleaned up. The opposite is true where they have the charlatan that's shepherding them into hell. 
And then strong delusion comes where they go grave soaking. That's an abomination before the Lord. Necromancy, that's an abomination. And yet it's happening. And it's going to get worse. You see? And here in Judges 20, there's something else in play. In this very same example, in this very same example where, you know, we give this example where you and me were, you know, we have godly sorrow and we're right with the Lord and praise be to the Lord. But in this very same example, there's also chastisement. There's also chastisement to where, say, for example, we left the little church and we go to Joyce Meyer. And we're there with Joyce Meyer. And then along with sorrow, we feel pain where we didn't like what the pastor told us. And so we went to this other church. We went over here and now our pastor is this, but it's just not the same. It's not the same. It's that's chastisement. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. You say, okay, you know, you're, you're, you're getting off track. You know, we're supposed to be in Judges 20 and you're giving all these examples here and examples there. Yes, because in Judges 20, something happens. Israel, in the first wave of warfare, they seek the Lord and they, Lord, who do we send? And the Lord speaks to them and says, send Judah. Except Israel takes casualties. You see? And then they go again. Lord, do we go again? And the Lord says, go again. And Israel takes casualties. The Lord, he is not the author of confusion. Confusion is a result of the person who is led away through seduction. And that's a pathway that leads to delusion. And then we also see chastisement as well, which is where here in Judges 20, we see that very same, you know, Lord, who do we send? Send Judah. They take casualties, a lot of casualties. Do we go again? Go again. What happens? Israel takes casualties. Remember, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. It's kind of like when you, when you see, you know, God is not the author of confusion. Picture a pathway. On one end is, you know, the very truth that God is not the author of confusion. And then on the other end is straight up strong delusion. And then there's a pathway between the two, the two points. Knowing that God is not the author of confusion, how does a person enter the pathway that leads to strong delusion? The confusion comes from the person because they're seduced. Now, along the way, there's going to be chastisement. Kind of like, you know, the efforts to get the person back to, to where they need to be. Just like when, when Paul speaks, you know, hey, you know, picture Paul speaking to a church. 
Everybody comes to church. They want to feel good. They're happy. You know, the worship team, they, they, they do their concert. They got the rock star voice. And then the pastor comes out and says, hey, we have a guest speaker. His name is Paul. And he's like, whoa, is this, is this the Paul from the Bible? Like, wow. Unbeknownst to them, you know, he got in my time machine and he's there. He's a guest speaker at this church. And so Paul stands at the pulpit and says, hey, you guys, your rejoicing is not good. What? Who is this guy? Those deacons, they're going to kick him out of the pulpit. Get out of here. We don't want your kind. God is love and we're supposed to love on each other. How dare you say that our rejoicing is not a good thing? You see? The pathway to strong delusion would lead a person to believe that way. But when you understand the formula, you realize Paul is right. And on that path that leads to strong delusion, there's also chastisement along the way. And we see that here in Judges 20. And we don't, it's not just reserved for Judges 20. Remember, the Lord never changes. We see it in the church. We see it in the New Testament and we see it in the church today. We're... Israel, they ask of the Lord, who do we send? Send Judah, exclamation point. Well, if this was of the Lord, how come we took casualties? Chastisement. Lord, do we go again? Go again. Israel takes casualties. If it's of the Lord, why do we take casualties? Chastisement. Is it chastisement for the sake of chastisement? Or is it chastisement for a reason? We get to verse 26 here in Judges 20. Then all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. Now this is, this is not like before. Notice what happens. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. You see? You see what's happening here? Certain gears are turning again. Good gears, holy gears. Instructions given many, many moons ago by Moses, by Joshua, by the elders under Joshua. Those gears are turning once again. Which... It brings about effectuation. Because before they had the priests, they had the Levites. The people were one. What was missing? Formula. Wrong formula. Yeah, they got a priest, but look at him. He's a sex head. Yeah, he had a wife, but to fulfill his sexual passions. So yeah, they had a priest. Look at the priest of Micah. Yeah, they had a priest. Look at the idolatry. You see? 
These are things that we speak on over and over and over and over and over and over. And we're going to keep doing it over and over and over and over so that you, my beautiful, beloved brother, my beautiful, beloved sister, so that you can understand formula. I say formula. Brother Peter says recipe. Well, in so, in so many words. Remember? When, with Peter's guarantee, when he says, you do these things and you will never stumble. Peter says that with guarantees. If you do this, you will never stumble. And you think like... Oh, the audacity. How could a person guarantee such a thing? How could a person, the audacity? And he goes further. He says, you do this, not only will you never stumble, but so an entrance into paradise will await you. It's guaranteeing paradise. You see? That's hardcore. And praise be to the Lord, there's no other way to live. And so here in Judges 20, something's happening where, you know, Lord, do we send Judah? Send Judah, they take casualties. Lord, do we go again? Go again, they take casualties. Those are, you know, double tap, 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 chastisement. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And now they go to the Lord again, but it's different. They have their burnt offerings and peace offerings. Remember our study in Leviticus? That the whole purpose, the whole point was so that people can be right with the Lord. We're so spoiled now as new covenant believers because we just fall to our faces and repent and we get cleaned up that way. Remember, he was like, oh, we have no role in, the, in, in our sanctification. We have no role to play. It's all done by Jesus. It's all done by the Lord. Well, let me just like taking a shower. We're not the water. We're not the shampoo. We're not the soap. But we still got to get inside. You see? The same thing with being clean before the Lord. We're not, we don't, we're, we're not the Lord. We don't do the, the, the sanctification in terms of, you know, like the actual sanctification of us, but we still fall on our faces. The heart that's right before the Lord, it still has to bow down to him. The same way that you get in the shower, you're not the bar of soap, you're not the shampoo, and you're not the water. You're not. You're you. But in order to be clean, you have to go inside. That's the same with our sanctification. We still have to fall on our faces before the Lord. Our hearts still need to bow down to him. And yet people like to say, oh, we have no part in sanctification. Oh, contraire. Oh, contraire. And so now, in Judges 20, these gears are turning. 
These ancient years are turning spoken of by Moses, spoken of by Joshua, spoken of by the elders under Joshua. Remember, leadership matters. And now things are different. The chastisement of the casualties that they took, it it hurt. It hurt, yes, but it was restorative. You see? And now look what happens in verse 27. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, remember Phinehas, stood before it in those days saying, Shall I yet again go to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? Or shall I cease? Very interesting. It's different now. Before it was presumptuous. It was presumptuous before the decision was already made. Lord, we're going to war. Who shall go first? It was presumptuous. It was already a dumb deal. And then they asked the Lord. But now it's different. Now they're right before the Lord, they brought the offering, the peace offering. You see rightness with God. And now it's not who should go first. Now it's, should we even be here, Lord? Lord, should we even be here? Shall we cease? Look at all these pieces in place for something so incredibly beautiful called effectuation. And in verse 28, the Lord says, and the Lord said, go up, go up. Something similar to before, you know, you know, send Judah, except they took casualties. Where he says, go again, and they took casualties. Now he says, go up. But notice here, for tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hand. You see, the Lord is with them. The Lord is with them. Before, Israel had the numbers. They outnumbered Benjamin by a lot, well over a thousand percent. They had the supply line. They had their battle formation, but they were missing the most important element, the Lord. You see, it's a different ballgame now. In verse 29, then Israel sent, set men in ambush all around Gibeah. Verse 30, and the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day. A lot of good, thing happens. good things happen on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at other times. Now, from Benjamin's perspective, <clears throat> from Benjamin's perspective, they might look at the situation and think, okay, it's more of the same. We're going to fight and we're going to win. We're going to take names like we did before, but unbeknownst to them, it's not like before. There's something else that must be said here. 
when we look at these battles and these this fighting, this is infighting. Israel is against Benjamin and Benjamin is against Israel, which is terrible. Terrible. Division in the camp. We never had to get to this point. It never had to get to this point. The rape never had to be there. But this is what happens when idolatry is left uncorrected and left to fester. Leaven left to fester in both Testaments, Old Testament, New Testament, and still today is never a good thing. Never. It leads to worse things. Where are the Pauls of our generation? Where are the Peters of our generation? Where are the Jameses of our generation? The Johns? Where? That's what I want to know. With this infighting, we see Israel against Benjamin. The question is, who's with the Lord? Who's with the Lord? Just like Onesiphorus. Remember Onesiphorus through our studies in the pastoral epistles? He has... Pastor Alexander, Pastor Himenaeus, and Pastor Paul. And everyone is leaving Paul in droves. Paul's little bubble and Paul's big bubble, people are leaving. Now, if you're listening for the first time, you're like, what is he talking about bubbles? Go back and listen to our pastoral epistle studies. You'll understand more. And people are leaving Paul in droves. But straight up, Onesiphorus? That's nice. I'm with Paul. You see, because Paul's with the Lord and the Lord is with Paul. You see, I'm with James and James is with Paul. I'm with Peter and Peter is with the Lord or, you know, I'm with, I'm with Paul. Paul's with the Lord. I'm with James. James is with the Lord. I'm with Peter. Peter is with the Lord. Who is it? Who is it that is with the Lord? You see? Because Alexander could say, follow me all he wants. Himenaeus can say, follow me all he wants. When you understand formula, you know. Which is why we stress formula over and over and over and over. And you know what? We're not stopping. We're going to keep stressing it over and over and over and over. Because the pathway that leads to apostasy and to strong delusion, it's big. And it is prophesied to happen. And it's not going to happen. It's already begun. It's happening. And it's sad. It's devastating. It hurts. It hurts bad. But notice what is happening here. In Judges 20, Israel is right with the Lord. And the Lord says, go, I'm going to deliver into your hand. I am with you. Where before, yeah, Judah first. Casualties. Do we go again, Lord? Yeah, go again. Casualties. Those are chastisement, moments of chastisement. And then they come, they're right with the Lord and they inquire of the Lord. Lord, should we even be here? 
Notice what happens here in verse 31. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel. So notice, Israel takes some casualties, but definitely not like before. Here they have 30 men of Israel. Those are the casualties. Definitely not like before. Verse 32, And the children of Benjamin said, They are defeated before us as at first. But the children of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. Now, you look at this and think, wow, you know, Israel, they're more tactical now, which is understandable. But the number one ingredient is the Lord. They're right with the Lord. They're right with the Lord and not just right with the Lord. Now they're under orders. The Lord has told them what to do. And in verse 34, and 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah and the battle was fierce, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord in verse 35, <clears throat> the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. Major casualties. Major casualties. Benjamin lost 25,100. It's sad. You know, when we look at these battles, it's not like, you know, this is... This hurts. I mean, last week, the, the, the egregious crime, the rape and the gang rape, that, that painful hurts. This infighting, it hurts. It's painful. And it is true that it never had to reach this point. But then you hit the rewind button in Israel. And what do we see? just a little idol. Micah's mom. Oh, just a little idol. No big deal. And in the course of time, look how it has metastasized to this point. To get here to this point. A lot of Bibles and commentaries, they point to Dan being uh, 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 influenced by Micah and his idolatry. But who was the influencer to Micah? Dear old mom with her idols. Look at in the course of time, things have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. And here we are. Major casualties in the, on both sides. It hurts. The gang rape that we looked at last week, that hurts. Painful, it never had to be this way. And yet here we are. 
And so we see in verse 36, so the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Now we get a little overview of what happened in verse 36. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites. And this is the drawing out in verse 31 and 32. We get a little overview of this, the battle tactics, so to speak. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush who they had set against Gibeah. So Benjamin is drawn away by the withdrawing of, we'll say, group one. Group one, you know, team one or platoon one or battalion one. We'll say that Benjamin is drawn away by the withdrawing of group one of Israel. But then the ambush begins with group two of Israel. And in verse 37, we see this. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. So group one draws Benjamin. Group two attacks Gibeah. Verse 38. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would, was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city. So Group two in Gibeah, they attack the city, then they start a fire, and group one sees the smoke. And in verse 39, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. Now, in this drawing, group one, they took 30 casualties. Group one took 30 casualties. But then they see the smoke in Gibeah. And set by group two. Now the Benjamites, they're the, the, the Benjamites. They're confident that they'll be victorious in battle. You know, in verse thirty-nine, surely they are defeated before us, just like the first battle. And verse forty. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them and there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. See, the Benjamites had confidence, but it was misplaced confidence. And now they're flanked on two sides in verse 41. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked for they saw that that disaster had come upon them. So Benjamin Chasing group one, chasing group one, thinking they're going to win. And they do take 30 casualties. And then group one sees the smoke. Group one turns around. Benjamin is like, you know, like, why are they turning around? They also look back and then they see the smoke. And then they realize, whoa, there was another group, group two, that was burning the city. They attacked the city. And then, you know, the Benjamites, now they have this realization that they're in big trouble. They're in big trouble. In verse 42, therefore, they turn their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. So flanked, where's the safest route? They run to the wilderness. But at this point, it's, for my veteran listeners, it's simple echelon movement for Israel. Benjamin is fleeing. They run in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. You see? Major casualties. Major, major casualties on both sides. It's sad. It it never had to get to this point. It never had to be this way. And yet, 
it's happening. The city was burning. The city is burning. And you know, more Benjamites, they've fled. So remember, we have like the warriors, the fighters of Benjamite, which was, you know, 700 were very effective. They could, they were so effective, so skilled that they could hit a hair. They could hit their target with the, they could sling and hit the target, the, the width of a hair. They were very skilled. They were skilled where, you know, they, they over, they, they, they won the first battle. Very skilled. And we see at the end of verse 42, and whoever came out of the cities, they destroyed in their midst. Verse 43, they surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of, as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. You see what's happening. Benjamin is under judgment here. The atrocity committed in Gibeah, they're not without them. It's not a free ride for them. No, they're under judgment. Do you remember how painful last week was? That was a very difficult study. Very horrible events that we see in chapter 19. And now what's happening is Benjamin is reaping what has been sown. But what's extra sad is that it never had to happen. It never had to happen, never had to be this way. If the Lord was remembered and honored in the land, where were the priests? Where were the priests? You say, wait a second, in Judges 19, 20, 17, 18, we have priests. Yeah, idolatrous. We got priests, all right. The idols of Micah, the priests liked that. Chapter 19, we have a priest, but he's a sex head. You see? Wife as concubine. You see? Wife herself was adulterous and left. And he goes back. He was a sex head. A fiend. So yeah, there's priests, but look at them. Look at them. When I say, where are the priests? What I really mean is, where is Aboda Aboda Mishkan? Where is that? If you're listening for the first time, you're like, what? Go back to Leviticus chapter one and listen to Leviticus and you'll understand. Where are the priests, the real priests? You see? Not for the sake of pride, so they can, oh, look, I'm a real priest. Oh, look how awesome I am. No. So that Israel can be clean before the Lord. The fact that we're here, the fact that we see this bloodshed of the wife and in Benjamin and in Israel and Judah, the very fact that we see this bloodshed, it hurts. You see? Remember all the animals? All the animals in Egypt when, you know, 
thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And finally, it got to the point where Pharaoh was like, hey, you know, go, you know, go, except, you know, you can go, you can leave only this, leave all the animals. Go, leave, except leave the animals. Those are for Egypt. Now, how many people, how many people would hear Pharaoh say, leave. You know, you're no longer under Egyptian captivity. Leave. And how many people would hear that and be, wow, we're free. Finally, we're free. Except the Lord says, no, let my people go. And Moses, you're taking the animals. So Pharaoh says to Moses, you know, you're free. Get out of here. Go, except leave the animals. And Moses says, no, Pharaoh. No, Pharaoh. You know how many people would hear that? I mean, if, if there was an audience of all Israel under bondage and they heard Moses say, no, Pharaoh, you know how mad they'd be at Moses? Moses, what are you doing? Moses, Pharaoh said that we're free. And you're saying no? You're rejecting? That's not what the Lord said. The Lord doesn't say, you know, does say the Lord, let my people go. The Lord says to Moses, Moses, take the animals. You're taking the animals. And when Moses says to Pharaoh, no, we're not going by ourselves. We're going to take the animals. And Moses even says to Pharaoh, we don't even know what the animals are for. But the Lord says, take the animals. So you open the door for us, Pharaoh, and you say we're free to go, but we're not going. You see, that's obedience unto the Lord. How many people do you think would be mad at Moses? How many people of yeah, the, the, the bondage of Israel in captivity in Egypt, if they were, if, if they were there in, in an audience and they were listening to Moses say to Pharaoh, you know, you know, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh says, okay, you're free to go, except leave the animals. And to hear Moses say, nope. You know how many people would be mad at Moses? Because the Lord says, Moses, go, and you're taking the animals. And Moses says to Pharaoh, we don't even know what the animals are for, but we're not going alone. It's us and the animals. And unbeknownst to Moses, you know what the animals were for? Blood. Blood. Life was in the blood. It was to atone for sin, which would be great in Israel. It would be great. And Moses didn't know. But the Lord knew. You guys need blood. You need blood to atone for sin. You see? Before the law was given. Remember, the commandments, Ten Commandments given three times. Don't forget. Three times. The first time, verbally rejected. The people say, Moses, Moses, don't let the Lord talk to us. You talk to the Lord, let the Lord talk to you, and we'll do what you say, Moses. The law rejected. 
rejected by the people. And then the law given a second time on two tablets. Moses comes down the mountain with Joshua. Beautiful, beautiful Joshua. What do they see? The golden calf. Worshipping the golden calf. And the Ten Commandments, the two tablets destroyed. You see? And then the third time, the Ten Commandments given on the second set of two tablets. Only this. Not without blood. Not without the blood. You see? I can't help but think of Moses. Like, oh, you know, I didn't know at the time what the animals were for, but now, wow, Lord, you're so good. Because life is in the blood, life for life. You see? To atone for sin, life for life. And the sin would be very great. And just as we read in Hebrews, if the, if the blood of animals could do that, how much more the blood of Jesus Christ, Lamb of God. You see? If you're listening and you're not a believer, why? Why? I mean, the Bible says light came into the world, but people love darkness more than the light. Is darkness really that good? And I tell you from experience, I was entrenched in the darkness. You hear us speak of the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, the, all this stuff. I was entrenched in that. To tell you that no, it's not good. And I say unto you, come out of her, my people. God loves you. God loves you. He loves you so much, not willing that you should perish, but that you should come to everlasting life, to paradise. Tree of life in the book of Genesis, tree of life in all through the Bible, you never see the tree of life except in Revelation where we see a picture of paradise. And that fruit is forbidden in Genesis. Except in Revelation, we feed upon that fruit. Why? Glorified bodies. See? That's where we're going. Paradise. You commit your life to Jesus Christ right here, right now. Don't love the darkness more than the light. Love the light. Light came into the world and light is here now. You hit pause, you listen to the message out of commit your life to Jesus Christ. And you do that right here, right now. You commit your life to Jesus Christ. You come back, you listen, and we grow together onward to paradise. That's where we're going. Guaranteed, exactly like Brother Peter says. You see? Here we are in Judges 20 and it, this never had to happen. The gang rape, the dead wife, hand at the door and she dies. 
It never had to be that way. Benjamin taking casualties, Judah taking casualties, Israel taking casualties. It never had to be this way. Where in the world were the priests? They had priests, all right. But I'm not talking about run-of-the-mill priests. Where are the real priests? The ones who honor the Lord, the ones who fear the Lord, the ones who love the Lord. Where are they? Don't forget, the law says that the Lord speaks to the people through the priests. Through the priesthood, Levitical priesthood given to Israel. And after the book of Judges, we're going to have a little intermission in a beautiful book. But then we're going to start to see the prophets. Where the Lord bypasses the priesthood. And just like with Isaiah. Where Isaiah says, thus saith the Lord, your offerings, your sacrifices, they're meaningless. What? It seems to be a disconnect. How is it that a prophet of the Lord can even have the audacity to even think and even say that the sacrifices given by Moses is not a good thing? How dare you say such a thing, Isaiah? How dare you say such a thing, Jeremiah? How dare you say such a thing, Amos, except this, the Lord is with these people and these people are with the Lord. You see? In verse 45 here in Judges 20, and then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. And they cut down 5,000, <clears> they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. Then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gedom and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fled of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. Now, something else that needs to be said here. There seems to be misalignment with numbers, where in verse 15, we see 26,700. And when you add things up, it doesn't fit. And we don't have to psychoanalyze or turn things into metaphors. We'll make it very, very simple. Because verse 15 says 26,700 who drew the sword that day. That day. So let's say, for example, there's a city, just for easy math. We'll say a city has a population of a thousand citizens. A population of a thousand citizens. And say that city has a separate active duty military force of 200, which per capita is pretty sizable. So a grand total of 1,200 people, 1,200 people. So you have the citizenry of a thousand, then you have active duty military force of 200. So grand total of 1,200. Now say the city is under attack. The city is under attack and all 200 active duty military are killed. They're all dead. Now you have a thousand of the populace. That's what's left. But of the populace, reservists become active and then they die. 
And then the police will step in and then they die. And then citizens will step in and then some of them die. So it, it, at the end of the fighting, the numbers seem off where there's 200 active duty military, but the casualty report is 850 and it just doesn't match. It's like, wait a second. It, it, there's a total of 1,200, you know, 1,000 of the citizens and 200 active duty, but then the casualty report is 850. Well, it doesn't fit. It only matches when you account for the entirety of a dwindling populace. And that's what's happening in Gibeah. They're under judgment, God's judgment, and God is using his vessels. You say, wait a second, I thought it was Israel. How could you say that he's using his vessels? It's Israel, but they're right before the Lord. You see, before they were not right and they took casualties, but now they are right. In verse 47, but 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and they stayed at the rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities that they came to. Another painful chapter. Yet another painful chapter. And it never had to be this way. How is it? How is it that we read Torah? First five books of the Bible, five books of Moses. How is it that we read Torah where God absolutely promises such beautiful things? Beautiful things. And yet we don't see beautiful things. How is this even possible? Satan seduces and in that seduction would have people believe that God isn't real, the Bible is fake. But when you understand formula and effectuation, you understand God's nature and character. And it's you and me. You and me. We align to him. Aligned to his son through the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. To the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.